Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Show on WNYC. I'm Bridget Bergen, senior reporter in the WNYC and Gothamist newsroom, filling in for Brian today. Happy Groundhog Day to all who celebrate. Maybe you already heard, but our local rodent, Staten Island Chuck, did not see his shadow. So as the legend goes, we'll be having an early spring. Hooray. On today's show, Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine joins us. He's got a proposal to remove old sidewalk sheds that seem to linger outside some buildings for years. We'll talk to him about that and a few other city issues. Plus, later in the show, Craig Newmark, he's the Craig of Craigslist, will be here along with Graciela Machkovsky, who is the dean of the Journalism Graduate School at CUNY. They'll tell us about a big donation from Craig's foundation that will allow the school to soon go completely tuition-free. Amazing. And we'll wrap up today's show with a call-in for anyone who works a four-day work week. Whether you're cramming five days of work into four or working reduced hours, we want to hear how the four-day work week is going for you. But first, senators called senators called on the CEOs of five major tech platforms to testify before them on the issue of child safety online this week. Featuring testimony from the bosses of Meta, the parent company of Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, Discord, and X, formerly known as Twitter, the scene was what some of us have come to expect from these high-profile hearings. Senators grilled these tech giants on the lack of transparency when it comes to social media and the harm it could potentially cause kids, but this time they focused pointedly on child sexual exploitation. To add to the highly charged atmosphere, Survivors of exploitation and family members of victims were in the audience. Here is Senator Dick Durbin with his opening remarks referencing something called CSAM, which stands for Child Sexual Abuse Material. Discord has been used to groom, abduct, and abuse children. Meta's Instagram helped connect and promote a network of pedophiles. Snapchat's disappearing messages have been co-opted by criminals who financially extort young victims. TikTok has become a, quote, platform of choice for predators to access, engage, and groom children for abuse. And the prevalence of CSAM on X has grown as the company has gutted its trust and safety workforce. And while some lines of questioning from senators might have looked like grandstanding, the political reality is sobering. Congress has tried and failed for years to overturn a 1996 law which gives online service providers broad immunity from lawsuits over their users' posts. Joining us now to explain that law and offer analysis of Wednesday's hearing is well is Will Aremus, technology reporter at The Washington Post. Will, welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for having me. And we're going to get into the specifics, but first, I want to reflect a bit on who was sitting before the senators on the dais and how you characterize the hearing overall. This was the latest in a string of hearings where tech executives have been called to testify by Congress. As you mentioned, it gives lawmakers a chance to grandstand. They can also ask questions and get answers to things that might be hard to get answers to in other contexts. This hearing was unique in that uh, there were 
families of victims and there were survivors of sexual exploitation in the audience. In fact, many of them were arranged right behind the CEOs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was an emotionally charged atmosphere that made it hard for anyone to be dismissive of the existence of the problem, regardless of how they felt about various efforts to solve it. Sure. Uh, you write about how, from the start, senators of both parties focused their criticism on, a, on the law that Congress passed in 1996, a law that paved the way for social media as we know it. Can you tell us more about this statute, the so-called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act? Yeah. So back in 1996, this is the era of AOL and Motorola flip phones. Uh, social media, as we know it, didn't exist. There were starting to be online forums, uh, you know, on on internet service providers like CompuServe and Prodigy, where people could go and and have chats on various topics or read news updates or that kind of thing. Uh, at the time, Congress was passing a big telecom bill, and as part of that telecom bill, there was there was rising concern uh, among lawmakers of both parties, maybe especially on the right, the prevalence of pornography online. And there was concern that kids would be able to get access to that pornography. I mean, you know, again, it's a, it, to go back to that time, I mean, this is mm. the time when there would be like, you know, in a convenience store, there would be Playboy magazines on the top shelf with a wrapper over them. Uh, sure. And and all of a sudden, there's this this new technology where anyone can log on and there's uh, there's pornography. There's all kinds of stuff on there. And they were concerned about that. And they were concerned particularly about kids getting access to it. And so uh, as part of that Telecom Act, they came up with something called the Communications Decency Act. And this act, a lot of it has been has been mostly forgotten, but it actually was aimed at protecting kids, at least nominally. And what it did was uh, it criminalized the transmission, the knowing transmission to children of uh, pornographic uh, or, or other uh, lewd material on the internet. Um, now, most of that law was mm -hmm. struck down the next year by the Supreme Court as mm. uh, as violating the First Amendment. There was, uh, they found that there was no way to enforce it without also chilling all kinds of legitimate speech. Um, but one little obscure section of it uh, survived, and that was called Section 230. And this was uh, a section that tried to address a problem where that was that was arising, where there, when someone would post something online that was libelous, uh, right, or something that violated the law, something that uh, ruined someone's reputation unfairly, there would be a lawsuit. And the person suing would sue not only the person who posted it, but they would sue the platform that hosted it, right? They would sue Prodigy, right. or they would sue AOL or CompuServe and say, hey, look, you published this libelous material. Uh, just the same way you would sue, you know, maybe a book publisher if they published a book that that included libel about you. And courts were conflicted over whether the online service providers should be treated as the publisher of that material or not. Should they be held accountable for the libel as well? Uh, and and so they the lawmakers came up with this section that said that the online service provider will not be treated as the publisher or speaker of material that their users post hmm. uh, in most cases. And and that's true whether they moderate the material or whether they choose not to moderate. Either way, they're not going to be held liable. Now, that has been the lasting legacy of the 1996 Communications Decency Act because that, that part didn't get struck down by the courts. And the result has been that whenever you try to sue an online platform for something their user posts, they're going to they're gonna say, 
look, Section 230 pr- pr- protects us. You can't sue us for this. We're not. You can't even take us to court over it. And so that has enabled the rise of social media. It has enabled companies like Facebook um, and Snap and Discord, the companies at this hearing, to exist and to get huge because they, generally speaking, with some exceptions, they're not really responsible wow. for hosting all kinds of harmful content. But Will, and, and you know, you made this clear that, you know, this statute is the the legacy of this act, uh, but it's not to say that it hasn't been challenged before, <clears throat> excuse me, not to mention some legislative pushes, even an executive order by President Donald Trump. Can you tell us briefly what kinds of challenges it has survived and whether that's unusual in any way? Yeah, so it has survived challenges from the very start. There's a great book on this by uh, Jeff Kossoff uh, called uh, called the 26 words that created the internet, um, referring to the to the the 26 the key 26 words in Section 230. Wow. Um, I mean, there Section 230 has lots of fans. You know, people who believe that that social media wouldn't wouldn't be able to exist. These fledgling online forums would have been snuffed out because they would have had to be defending themselves all the time against all kinds of lawsuits. I mean, can you imagine if Facebook had was able to be held liable in court for everything its users post? It would just be it would just be in court all the time, right? And so uh, Section 230 has a lot of backers, particularly in the tech industry, in the social media industry. Uh, But over the years, it has also acquired a lot of critics and 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 so it has survived uh, challenges in court. It has survived uh, in, in 2018. There was actually a law created that carved out a certain type of material from Section 230 protection. And that was called SESTA-FOSTA. This law said that if, if it's material related to facilitating sex trafficking in particular, then those Section 230 protections in many cases won't apply. You won't you won't get to say as a platform uh, that that, oh, well, you can't take me to court uh, for hosting sex trafficking. Um, you could still say that for other stuff, but not sex trafficking. So uh, and then in 2020, let's see, in 2020, I believe uh, I'm going <laughs> to get the year wrong. President Trump uh, started attacking Section 230. He was upset about it for a different reason. Um, he was upset at the power that social media companies have acquired to moderate content. In particular, he was upset that Twitter fact-checked, applied a fact-checking label to one of his tweets. Um, and he felt that these these social media companies have too much power to decide what people can and can't post online. Uh, because again, Section 230 protects their ability to moderate sure. uh, content as well. And so he said he, he tried to um, pass an executive order. He tried to withhold um, a, approval from a defense bill. Uh, if they didn't, if if there wasn't a weakening of Section 230. Now, um, Biden undid that executive order, but even President Biden has expressed skepticism about whether Section 230 has has gone too far. Has it been too widely applied to say that tech platforms are are basically not responsible for anything, um, and, and should that be revisited? Hmm. Uh, Will you also write about how m- much of the hearing? was focused on social media as a dangerous gateway to child sexual exploitation. And I should note that other senators mentioned bullying, the promotion of self-harm and eating disorders, as well as a means for kids to buy drugs online. And the big problem senators were trying to address is that these companies aren't focused, excuse me, are not forced to disclose the data on potential harm. Did the hearing get any answers out of these tech CEOs about what data they're willing to provide? 
Not exactly. I, and I should note that for anyone who's, who's watched one of these hearings, there are a lot of questions and there are there are fewer real answers, both because the tech CEOs uh, have an incentive to evade answers, but also because sometimes the, the lawmakers uh, will get very worked up and ask a question and not even give the CEO time to answer because what they really <laughs> want to do is be seen asking the question. They don't actually care what the response is. So I wouldn't say we get a ton of, of, of enlightening answers, but what we do get, um, you know, for one thing, even before the hearing started, are what Senator Dick Durbin uh, Riley referred to as deathbed conversions, where companies will suddenly uh, introduce new policies aimed at protecting children, or uh, SNAP, for instance, decided to endorse uh, one of the major bills around kids' safety online called the Kids Online Safety Act in the week before the hearing. They're trying to have, they want to have something to talk about, something to point to when their CEO goes up there to say, look, we are doing something, we do care, Uh, we're working on it. You don't have to you know, do something drastic like repealing Section 230, we're, we're, we're going to partner with you on this. Listeners, I know we have a lot of parents who are concerned about their children's safety online who are listening now, you know, whether we're talking about sexual exploitation or more insidious issues that social media might cause. Uh, Senator cited the promotion of self-harm, eating disorders, access to drugs in this hearing. What are you as a parent navigating for your kids online? What do you want to share? Or is there something that you think might help? The number is 212-433-WNYC. That's 212-433-9692. You can call or text at that number. Uh, Will, I want to get into what the senators were specifically calling for in a bit. But as someone who has been covering these types of hearings, um, you talked about how you know, there's a time when members of Congress would routinely preface their critiques of tech CEOs by thanking them for their innovative products and the jobs their companies have created. Um, it sounds like the hearing this week was different. Yeah, over time. Uh, yeah. So when they first started calling tech CEOs to testify, it, that was a normal thing, especially Republicans. But members of both parties would say, you know, Mr. Zuckerberg, thank you so much for, you know, you've created this, this great American company. You're part of this dynamic American tech sector that ensures we're world leaders in technology. But we do have concerns about, you know, about this or that. Now that those niceties are largely gone. I mean, for for lawmakers these days, I think the the incentive is to portray yourself as being tough on big tech. Uh, it's been it's been really this this turn in public opinion over the years, uh, similar to when uh, you know I, I wrote years ago about the rise of the term big tech itself was a bad omen for the tech industry. Right? We don't start calling an industry big. <laughs> until we're also uh, considering it to be potentially bad. You think of, you know, uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt railed against big business. Sure. That was maybe the first one. There's uh, big to- big tobacco, right? Big pharma. Um, so that turn came, you know, maybe in the mid-20-teens when we started calling these companies. We used to call them startups, by the way, right? Um, you know, Google was called a startup up until uh, maybe about 2010. All of a sudden, they're big tech. And, and now, as a lawmaker, you want to be seen as standing up for the little guy, particularly in this case, when the little guy here is, uh, you know, kids who, and, and this is a real problem, by the way, it's, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's an element of moral panic to this. Um, uh, but there's also a, a very real problem uh, sure. of kids being sexually exploited online. And by the way, it is not just an American problem. This is 
truly a global problem. If you look at the at the 80, 80 some million reports uh, to the, the federal clearinghouse of online child sexual abuse material just last year, 90% of them actually originated outside the United States uh, with, with the most originating from, from Asia. So this has become a global problem. It's everything from, from you know, graphic videos of sexual assault of kids circulating online to teens who are uh, uh, extorted by by sexual predators who maybe pose as, uh, you know, if it's a teen boy, maybe they pose as a teen girl of the same age, ask him to send a naked photo. And then once they've got that, they use that to blackmail him, to send more stuff or to get his friends to send stuff oh. or blackmail him for money. I mean, and this ruins people's lives. So it is a very real problem. It is understandable that there's anger and outrage um, but getting to the solution is the really hard part. It, it is such tough stuff. Um, Will, there was a line of questioning from Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota and how tough it, it is for parents to monitor their children's social media use. And in response, Meta's Mark Zuckerberg talked about how the onus shouldn't be on the social media companies, but on the tech companies that control the apps in the first place. Let's listen to about a minute of their exchange. I don't think that parents should have to upload an ID or prove that they're the parent of a, of a child in every single app that their children use. I think the right place to do this and a place where it'd be actually very easy for it to work is within the app stores themselves, where my understanding is Apple and Google already, or at least Apple, already requires parental consent when a child does a payment with an app. So it should be pretty trivial to pass a law that requires them uh, to make it so that parents have control any time a child downloads an app um, and, and, and offers consent of that. Um, and, and the research that we've, that we've done shows that the vast majority of parents want that. Um, and I think that that's the type of, of, of uh, legislation, in addition to some of the other ideas that you all have, that would make this a lot easier yeah. for parents. I just, just to be clear, I remember one mom telling me, with all these things she could maybe do that she can't figure out, it's like a faucet overflowing in a sink, and she's out there with a mop while her kids are getting addicted to more and more different apps and being exposed to material. We've got to make this simpler for parents so they can protect their kids, and I just don't think this is going to be the way to do it. Will, uh, what point do you think Zuckerberg was making in this case, and is he just basically kicking the can down the road or, or shifting blame to someone else, or, or is there some validity there to, to what he's suggesting? It's both. Um, so there are a number of different bills on the table to address this. So we're at the point where pretty much everybody agrees that that you know social media can be harmful to kids and that maybe something needs to be done to better protect kids online. And the question is what is what is it that we're going to do and how are we going to make sure that it actually protects kids, first of all, and that second of all, it doesn't end up doing more harm than good in the long run. And so one of the proposals that's on the table is something called age verification, where you require in some way that that apps make sure that someone is uh, 18 or over if they're gonna you know, target them with ads or, or targeted recommendations. Um, maybe you make sure that they're between 13 and 17 if they wanna use the app at all, and then there'll, there'll be certain restrictions uh, if a kid is, is a teenager of that age. And then you wanna make absolutely sure that nobody under 13 is using the app. So that, so, but then the question is, how do you verify their age? I mean, one of the things, one of the amazing things about the internet from the start has been the possibility of anonymity. There's that classic New Yorker card 
cartoon uh, was like on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so on the internet, nobody knows if you're 12. Um, and so a lot of lawmakers would like to see that changed. Well, okay, so how do we do that? One of the ideas is to require the apps themselves. So like Facebook is an app, Snapchat is an app um, to, to make sure that all of their users are 13 and up in some form, maybe require their parents to upload some kind of ID. I mean, it gets it starts to get invasive pretty quickly uh, when you think about how do you how do you ensure beyond just, you know, asking them to check a box that says I'm over 13. Sure. How do you make sure they're telling the truth? Um, what Mark Zuckerberg is saying here is that he thinks that instead of the apps like his apps, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, having this responsibility. How about we make the 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 mobile platform? So Apple's iOS should already know a lot about its users. Why don't we make Apple be the one who has to ensure that a, a user is you know thirteen or up to use certain apps, or or that they're eighteen or over to use other apps? Why don't we make Google when you know they own the Android platform? Wouldn't that be a lot simpler? So that's his suggestion. And, and there is some validity to it. And you know, in some ways, it might be simpler. It also is absolutely shifting the blame. Sure. Uh, I want to bring some of our listeners into the conversation. Let's go to Roz in Queens. Roz, you're on WNYC. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, great discussion. So I'm a millennial. And also, I work at a big tech company. And um, I also have kids as well. And I think on balance, what I've realized is it's really an asymmetric bet to letting your kids use social media. I see very minimal upside and mostly downside to allowing young people on these platforms. In addition, I think the risk that AI presents now with people being able to use your images and videos for you know, all sorts of nefarious purposes, uh, that has created an additional risk for allowing kids content and images online. So... Uh, for our family, we made the decision. It makes it makes no sense. Uh, and, I, and I do think to the point about uh, the apps creating friction, I think it's good to create friction to let kids create social media accounts. You don't want it to be a frictionless experience because the risk that's posed on the other side is so great. It shouldn't be easy to just with one click create a profile. So just wanted to provide that insight. Thank you. Roz, thanks so much for that call. Will, any reaction? I mean, Roz is calling from the place of both a parent and someone who works in this industry. Do we still have Will? <laughs> Sorry, I was muted there. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt your calling. Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of parents these days are asking that that question. I'm a, I'm a parent of a kid. I'm certainly wary of having any images uh, of my kid online these days, uh, let alone using social media. Um, thankfully, they're not of that age yet. But, um, you know, the question is, is first, should kids be on social media at all? Second, if if the answer is no, how, how do you stop them? Right? I mean, that's easier said than done. Um, and, and one of the things is that if you ask teens, a lot of them will say, we do want to be able to use social media but we are concerned about these algorithms that keep us addicted you know that keep us scrolling we're concerned about uh you know people exploiting our images we're concerned uh, about how these apps work we we do worry we spend too much time on them a lot of teens i think would rather have 
help getting control of their online lives as opposed to just being sort of barred altogether from the social media world. One of the things that that comes up in these debates is particularly for some of the most vulnerable teens, um, kids who are LGBTQ, uh, kids who are, are struggling with gender identity, kids who are struggling with loneliness, depression. Um, you know, social media can make your mental health worse, but it can also be a hub for connection. It can be a way to find your people. It can be a way to find information that you can't find elsewhere. Um, you know, think about also kids in other countries where, you know, maybe maybe there uh, aren't as many free speech protections. Um, there isn't a way to get information about reproductive health, about what they're going through. Um, uh, kids in, in states where uh, there are laws uh, about reproductive health that prevent them from accessing information. So social media can have a, a lot of good sides sure. and it also has a lot of bad sides. And so it, it is a, it is a tricky question of how much should kids be on social media and is there a way to, to make their experience of social media, uh, is there a way to put more friction, as the caller said, into that experience? Is there a way to make it a little safer than, than uh, those of adults? If you're just joining us, I'm Bridget Bergen, in for Brian Laird today. We're going to take a quick break. More with my guest, Will Remus from The Washington Post, on this recent hearing with tech CEOs and really unpacking some of the uh, limitations to our current regulations around social media. Plus, of course, your calls coming up. Stay with us. The Brian Lair Show and WNYC. If you're just joining us, I'm Bridget Bergen, in for Brian Lair today, and my guest is Washington Post technology reporter Will Remus. We're talking about this week's Senate hearing with big tech CEOs on child safety online. Will, in one of the most extraordinary moments, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg, of course, as we've mentioned, that's the company that owns Instagram and Facebook, apologized to victims and families present with after a lot of pressure from Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. I want to take a listen to a clip that's a bit hard to hear at some points, but definitely worth listening to. Senator Hawley speaks first. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? I, 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 I'm sorry for everything that you've all done. knowing that to go through the things that your families have, have suffered. And this is why we invested so much and are going to continue doing industry big efforts to, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. And if that was a little hard for anyone to catch, Zuckerberg begins with, I'm sorry for everything you've had, uh, you've all been through. No one should have to go through things uh, that your families have suffered. And this is why we've invested so much. Will, you want to just reflect on that moment a little bit and what it made you think of? Yeah, this was, you know, for one thing, Mark Zuckerberg has has come a long way uh, from the CEO who is often described as robotic uh, in his in his younger days. Uh, he he under intense questioning from from Senator Hawley uh, and it was a heated exchange at times. He seems to have made the call. I don't know if it was premeditated to, to get up and turn around and face those parents and and make that acknowledgement of what they've gone through. I don't know if I would quite call it a real apology because he didn't he didn't accept responsibility. And in the, in the next beat after that clip, he says, 
you know, and that's why we at Meta are, have all these industry-leading efforts to protect uh, kids online. Part of the context for this was that there was a uh, a complaint, a legal complaint in Massachusetts that was unredacted in November, that alleged that some of Meta's other top executives, uh, including Adam Masseri, who runs Instagram, and, and Nick Clegg, their communication, their global affairs president, had urged Zuckerberg to take some more actions to, to get ahead of this issue, uh, devote more staff and resources to addressing bullying, harassment, suicide prevention, and that Zuckerberg had ignored them and pushed them off and, and basically failed to prioritize it. And so uh, that's that's part of why he was, he was getting grilled at this hearing o- over these issues. Hmm. Do, do you think, you know, it seems like media companies and your re- reaction, at least online, has been that there was some admission of guilt on the part of Zuckerberg. Do you think there are, is potential for any lasting implications? Well, again, I think where the rubber meets the road here is is in the actual legislation. Is any of it going to pass? And if it does, what will the practical effects be? So one of the key laws that's under discussion is called the Kids Online Safety Act. This would impose on online platforms uh, something called a duty of care. Basically, it would say that they have to take reasonable measures to uh, protect kids from uh, stuff like uh, content that encourages eating disorders, um, content that's trying to uh, sell them drugs or, or tobacco, uh, sexual exploitation. Um, this has been this has gained bipartisan support, uh, and it is seems to be marching along. And yet there are critics who worry that it is too vague, hmm. and uh, there are, are critics who say that um, you know this could be used to to chill all kinds of legitimate expression. In particular, some people on the left are very concerned that one of the bill's co-sponsors, Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican of Tennessee, ha- has said that that part of her goal with this bill is to protect kids from being exposed to. Uh, material about gender identity. Uh, you know, there are some on the right who equate uh, uh, discussions of gender identity with with sexual grooming and sexual exploitation. And so, you know, is that going to be a way for that agenda to get forced into law? And and not only that, but but to dictate how social media companies behave and the type of material they filter. So it's it's controversial. It also enjoys a lot of support. There are other provisions in the law, like uh, requiring them to do certain types of filtering for, for kids between 13 and 17. Um, so that's one of the big ones. Uh, there are a few others on the table, including ones that that tackle parts of Section 230, that, that statute we talked about earlier, that indemnifies tech companies from all so, sorts of liability. So, Will, I want to make sure that um, you know and our listeners know that I see we have a lot of callers who want to weigh in on this topic, some very concerned parents who want to share their own strategies and who have some questions, I think, for you and, and for you know our broader community. But while we are on this topic of the legislation, I just want to stick with this for a minute. Um, the, the bill that you just mentioned, I think you've also written about how there's a package of five bills in total, um, another piece of uh, legislation that would address Section 230, as I understand it, is the Earn It Act, um, which could specifically roll back um, the Section 230 protections. Can you explain to what extent that would work and how it, you know, how it would apply? And then also the status of some of these bills. 
Yes. So there's a package. So the Kids Online Safety Act is one. Um, there's then a package of five bills that actually have been advanced by the committee that held this hearing. That's the Senate, Senate Judiciary Committee. These five bills were advanced uh, by the committee in May, but they haven't come up for a floor vote. So the Senate's leadership hasn't decided that they're a top priority or doesn't think that they have the votes to pass it or doesn't want it to pass, one of those three. And so there was some frustration from lawmakers on this committee that their bills haven't uh, moved any further. And then there also aren't companions to these bills in the House yet. So they would face another tough road there on the way to package uh, on the way to passage. But one of those, as you mentioned, is the Earn It Act. This would uh, a little bit analogous to that SESTA-FOSTA bill I, I mentioned earlier around sex trafficking. This would roll back the Section 230 protections when the content in question is child exploitation content. So, you know, the rest of, you know, you can still get Section 230 protections if the content is liable, uh, you know, or that sort of thing, but you don't get the protections anymore if the content has to do with with sexual abuse of children. Um, there's also the Stop CSAM Act. That's another one of that package of five bills that would actually create a cause of action, making it you know making it illegal in some ways to host this type of content. So that you know not only would the platforms not have those 230 protections, but there would be an actual statute that that victims and their families could refer to when they file suit against these companies. Uh, none of these bills yet have come up for a floor vote, uh, and so even though there is bipartisan support which is unusual these days, sure. the strength of that bipartisan support and its ability to to survive uh, uh, final votes in the House and Senate is not yet clear. Desiree in Park Slope, thanks for holding. Welcome to WNYC. Good morning. Um, so I wanted to start by saying that I am a child of farm life and I'm also a child of New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have lived in each place for pivotal moments of my life. I'm a librarian. I work with young people all the time. I was an academic librarian previously. Now I'm a broadcast media librarian. So I understand how broadcast media uses social media specifically to influence um, young people. What I want to say is this. My grandmother used to say that you can't buy good home training. And I'm going to paraphrase it and say that you can't legislate good home training because the person who calls um, to talk about how his family dealt with social media and his children, that is literally the only way that you're going to solve this issue. You cannot legislate what children do behind their parents' backs. You can't filter it. People have been trying to filter since the internet, since the web was born, um, because I've used technology since I was 12 years old. Um, so I, I, I don't think, I feel, I feel like the whole conversation about what's happening in the Senate, which is a performance, not an actual hearing, um, is a deflection. Hmm. It's a f- deflection from the fact that children are asked to do dangerous things literally every day. They ride the subway by themselves at 12, 13 years old. Children on farms, I drove a tractor when I was 11. Those are things that you teach children to make them safe because you don't have the option to keep them away from everything that's dangerous. And so um, if a parent doesn't understand all the apps and technology their child is using, then that means it's time for that parent to get themselves to the public library so they can take a free class and learn. Because you re- you're raising children in an age of technology, you need to understand how the technology works. It's not enough to try to legislate away bad people. 
bad people exist. Children have been abducted before there was a World Wide Web. Desiree, thank you for your call. And it's great to know that there is an option uh, available at public libraries to help people who want to get educated about how to use some of these social media apps. Although, Will, as we know, not every parent is necessarily as able or engaged as as each other, and, and those kids still deserve the same protections. Um, I want to go to Avi in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Yeah. Avi, welcome to WNYC. Hi. Um, this is, I guess, kind of building on what Desiree just talked about. But first of all, Bridget, uh, you always do such an excellent job when filling in for Brian. So thank you for doing that. Thanks, um, I just wanted to ask about education and whether that is um, at all a component of what anybody is talking about. I have two kids, a first grader and a fifth grader. And during the pandemic, especially my fifth grader, who was in first grade at the time, was kind of handed this device and there was like no training or any kind of, you know, education around the internet or how to responsibly navigate it, you know, obviously age appropriate uh, education and um, whether that is being incorporated into the thinking and not just blocking kids from using it, but doing kind of what Desiree was talking about, but on a larger scale in the edu- using the education system to say, this is a something that is now part of society and children need to learn, you know, to responsibly use it or to be more savvy about it um, and how do we make them sort of part of the solution you know avi thanks for that question will i'd love to get your reaction to both desiree and avi just this idea that there is some responsibility for parents to be more tech literate but also you know that there needs to be a certain component to help make sure that children who are just handed new tools understand how to use them appropriately yeah, I mean, I think absolutely uh, digital literacy has to be part of the solution and good parenting. You know, if, if you're a, if you're a good parent, you absolutely should be engaged in what your kid is doing online. That's you know, that's critical. I think the question that lawmakers are asking that that is valid is should all of the responsibility be on uh, the parents and the kids or should some of the responsibility also be on the tech platforms. I think Desiree did make a really good point, which is that you can try all you want to filter the internet that kids see. History teaches us they're gonna find a way around that. Um, you know, but but to the point that that you know you, you can't do anything about it from a regulatory perspective. Uh, you know, there there is there are some valid responses to that. So so Georgia Senator John Ossoff, a Democrat, uh, made this sort of philosophical argument in the hearing where he said, "Look, we know that social media is a dangerous place for teens." We also know that social media companies, by their business models, are incentivized to attract more teens and to keep them engaged and to keep them spending more time. You might also add to that that one of the ways that social media uh, companies have found to keep kids engaged is to show them content that upsets them or outrages them or disturbs them or plays on their anxieties. And so you, in that sense, you could see this as sort of a broken system, right, where the, the companies, in order to make their bottom lines go up, Ha, you know, almost have to keep showing kids content that is that is potentially harmful to them, and and keep them on their phones more than the kids want to be. Uh, there, there's this idea that they kind of you know they exploit uh, our brains to make yeah. us keep scrolling. And so, is there anything that public policy can do about that? I think is a, is a legitimate question. Well, I want to read uh, a text from one listener before we wrap up here. Uh, this listener writes, parent of a 13-year-old here, Apple provides very little help to parents controlling their kids' use. 
My daughter doesn't have any social media apps, but loves YouTube and would watch videos 24 hours a day if she could. Apple lets parents disable apps during certain hours, but won't let you shut down Safari, which is their internet um, service provider, which is ridiculous. Uh, So more concerns from parents on the challenge of trying to um, limit kids' access to these tools. Um, Just in our, our last minute, Will, we've mentioned a bunch of pieces of legislation that could have an impact on these social media companies. Um, Anything in particular we should be watching going forward? Yeah, I think one of the big, one of the big debates this will come down to is the debate between uh, safety and privacy. So a lot of the measures that would potentially make kids safer online would also require a lot more invasive monitoring by tech companies. And so they weren't there at this hearing, but the privacy advocates are going to come out of the woodwork. And so one of the questions is, should you be able to have encrypted messaging platforms such that nobody, including law enforcement, can tell what's happening on there? And Apple's iMessage is one of these. Um, Or should that not be allowed because that creates a haven for these types of horrible sexual exploitation? Uh, I think that's going to be one of the key real debates that, that this comes down to. We're going to leave it there for now. My guest has been Washington Post technology reporter Will Remus, and we've been talking about this week's Senate hearing with big tech CEOs. Will, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.